Good morning. Several people have mentioned to me lately that I've become very shaky. Have you noticed this? This is an old, I think it's an old age thing. Maybe I've always been shaky. But try this. Are you shaky? Ooh. All right. Try this. Turn your hand over. Make a fist. Clench it tight. Now, open up your hand, unlocking your fingers, opening up. Today, we're talking about resurrection. And Jesus wanting to meet us somewhere here and now today. We're talking about this story of Jesus raising Lazarus. So just a quick review of where that story has started and bringing us up to this third section today. The story starts out, says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. And so that's the beginning, John chapter 11, verse 1. So this guy's sick. And Lazarus, his sister Mary and his other sister Martha, they're a family, and they are very good friends of Jesus. We don't know all the details about their relationships, but we know that these are very important people to Jesus. And in particular, when um, the sisters send a message to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, they send the message, Jesus, the one you love, is sick. And so there's some deep connection with Jesus in this family. But rather than jumping up and immediately going not very far to get to Lazarus, Jesus waits a couple days before going. And when he arrives, um, everybody's talking, and they've been probably saying this already, saying, oh, Jesus, if you'd just been here, Lazarus would not have died. And he's now four days, he's been dead and buried, and Jesus is a little late, or so it seems. Because Jesus, in this story, is wanting to open us up to see something more than being mortal, to seeing the glory of God in eternity. So here's where we're going today. Horse, snort, stinky, prayer, and letting go. And just because I like horse snort, I'm going to say it as many times as I can. So horse snort. Jesus, he arrives. It's not funny to arrive at somebody's tomb, but Jesus arrives at somebody's tomb, Lazarus's tomb. And everybody, of course, has been talking. Days have gone by. And it says that Jesus is deeply troubled. And so it's used a couple times, this phrase. And if you see this phrase elsewhere in literature, it means horse snort. This deeply moved and troubled. And so you can imagine a horse going, right? And when you do that as a human, as a person, it's expressing something deep. It's expressing some deep emotion. And in this case, trouble. So there's some anger in it. There's some frustration in it. So when Jesus goes, he's expressing something that words can't express in what he's feeling in that moment. Maybe you felt that guttural expression of yourself where you go, or you go, ah, or even when you weep. Jesus says that Jesus wept in between the two horse snorts. And Jesus weeping is that just guttural taking over of your whole body, where things shut down and weeping takes over. And so that's the emotion of Jesus when he arrives at his best friend's tomb. And so we wonder, what is Jesus groaning about? What is Jesus angry about? 
And as you know, in grief and in sorrow, there's lots of mixed up things all in that one thing. And so I want to think about four things that Jesus could be angry or frustrated with as he's at the tomb. The first is very simply, this is Jesus' best friend, perhaps Lazarus, who just died. And Jesus is sad about death, about loss, just about the way this goes here on this earth. And just like you and I mourn the loss of someone, Jesus is mourning the death of his friend. But second, and maybe in contrast to that, think about Jesus mourning his friend in a different way. Because if, if Lazarus has died and now has gone up to heaven, he's been in heaven several days with God. And now Jesus is troubled to bring Lazarus out of heaven back to the earth and to experience all this once again. You know, perhaps Jesus remembers or knows something about leaving heaven and coming to earth. And so he's troubled about that perhaps as well. Or perhaps Jesus is troubled about the people around him, the people who can't quite see what he wants them to see. As Jesus wants them to see beyond just the problem-solving ability of healing a person, to Jesus is bringing this great power of new life and spiritual aliveness. And so they're not seeing that. They're just seeing the mortal part of this person has died. And if you had been here, he wouldn't be dead. And Jesus is just troubled, like, ah, I want you to think about something even bigger. I want you to see and know and understand something more about the kingdom of God than just this little thing of raising somebody from the dead. It's kind of little. And last, fourth, it's possible that Jesus is troubled, and he goes, because he is about to face the crucifixion and all that's going to go into that for him. And there's angst and worry and, and trouble inside of Jesus. And he's expressing it in this guttural way as he's at the tomb of his friend. So grief and sorrow, this emotional indignation, it comes and it goes and it moves and it shifts in our experience of it. You know, perhaps you can think about your own experience of grief and how it can be connected to anger. That like, oh, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I don't want this. I don't like this. This is bad. This is disappointing. But maybe that anger can shift over, and that settles down, and something else rises up in sadness. And now your experience in grief is sadness, and sobbing just takes over as you just are undone and broken down. And perhaps that sadness can ebb away, and fear can move in. You know, this fear in your experience of grief, is this wondering what will happen in the future. You know, what loss is next? How will I ever move on from this? Think about Jesus in this moment of fear ahead that he has to face the crucifixion. And we carry these things of grief in the past, in the present, and in the future. So being mortal... <laughs> Being mortal is the horse snort. It is that guttural experience of life that words cannot express, 
but it is in us, and we want to get it out in some way. You know, this morning, perhaps it would be helpful to imagine in your life and in yourself, somehow in your biological makeup, you have a shelf in you, a storage shelf of grief. You know, all these things that as your life goes, you experience, and it's things that are hard and, and you don't want. And in you, it gets stored up inside of you. You know, perhaps it's um, some people, and people who've died, people who've moved away, people who've disappointed you, just the people that are in storage in your life in those hurt moments. You can think about the present and the ongoing hurts and griefs that you might have. Think about the ongoing present hurt and grief of your job and all the things that you don't want to do. You might feel stuck in, but you just have to keep doing them. I think about this in a funny way as a parent. Forgive me. But my children can be a grief because I remember as a tiny baby changing all kinds of diapers and the grief of, oh, why do I have to do this over and over? When will this end? Will this ever end? And then something new replaces that and just goes and goes and all the things that I wish I didn't have to do, there's grief in that. But there's also this great joy of these children and their growing up and participation with them. So there's this mix of emotion, right? The ongoing present grief. Or maybe your grief is just one event right now, right in front of you. It's the thing. And it is, it takes over your life. You know, I just made this up, but some of these things, this is, I have this in my office. This is a Velveeta box filled with prayers from my grandma and her prayer group. And uh, <clears throat> so it brings up some grief in my memory and love for my grandma. But also this box, it also represents some other grief because somebody once came to our house and tore it open to write a note to themselves on my Velveeta box. Now I have grief that I cannot let go. I also have a cup over here from China. One of my friends, when I lived in China, Feng Wei, made, had, took a picture, put it on a coffee mug, and just remembering my friendship with him and the sadness that the internet wasn't really invented yet, and we've lost touch. And so it's funny how you can, these people can come up in your memory, and you just think about them in odd and random ways. And sometimes, you know, they come up, and you just think about them, and they pass. But other times, you come to your storage shelf of grief, and it just, like, knocks you out. And it just, like, takes you to your, like, knocks your feet out. And you just have to sit down. And you know this. And sometimes you just have to lay down, because it just totally completely makes you wonder, how am I going to go on in that grief? And that is the horse snort. As Jesus knows the horse snort, he knows our horse snort. And he cares. And it's in that that we bring ourselves to him that he would meet us because he knows. 
And he wants that loss, that thing, to be a doorway into resurrection and into the eternal. Let's get out of there. Stinky, stinky. Jesus, after the horse snort troubled feeling, the story goes on. Jesus comes and says, take away the stone. And Martha, Martha says, "Ah, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor. for He's been in there four days. I love it. Martha's like, Jesus, he's stinky. And in that, Jesus, Jesus wants them to see something more than the stinky. Wants them to see this power of God and something more. Jesus says, repeating something he had mentioned earlier to her, said, did I not tell you that if you believe, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And being mortal is being stinky. You know, a couple weeks ago, we had Marcus Doe speak, and he shared some of his stinky story of loss and mourning and grief. And he gave us the reminder to not rush too quickly through that or to mourn and linger too long in that. But he invited us instead to hold the tension of that grief, of those people, of those events, and invite Jesus and his provision into it. Invite Jesus' life and resurrection into it. So when Jesus says, if you believe, what is Jesus inviting us to believe? First, pretty clearly, Jesus is saying, believe in me. Earlier he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says to Martha, believe in me. It's not believe this principle or believe this set of ideas or believe this rules group that if you live by. Jesus says, believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. And second, the second thing we're invited to believe is that Jesus is okay with stinky. You know, Jesus loves you. Jesus knows you. Jesus wants to be in relationship with you. And he's okay with stinky. The problem is that we are ashamed of our stinkiness. So we transfer our ashamedness over to Jesus and think that he thinks what we think. We think, oh, Jesus, just look away. This is not a pretty part of me or my life. You know, this happened, and now I'm stained in this way. Just look away. But Jesus, he is okay with stinky. He is saying, yes, I know you're stinky, and I am okay with that. You know, we think, oh, I have to clean this up. Like, oh, Jesus, just look away. I'll, I'll clean up. You know, we, what are our skills in getting cleaned up? I mean, our skills are more in hiding and covering over and 
doing things that are not actually cleaning up. And Jesus says, just come, come to me, stinky. You know, you think about babies, since I've been thinking about babies and poopy diapers. Think about a baby in a poopy diaper. What ability do they have to clean themselves up? And if they try, it just makes things really worse. <laughs> so, somehow, God gave the gift to parents to not, to, I don't know, can you love the stinky? But you can not be concerned about the stinky, but be able to move in and take care of that. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into as well. This is a great quote. St. Peter, Chrysologus. Why then, man, are you so worthless in your own eyes and yet so precious to God? Why render yourself such dishonor when you are honored by him? Why do you ask how you were created and do not to seek to know why you were made. Yes, we're stinky, but Jesus knows that, loves that, and moves toward us in that. Stinky is the place where resurrection life can begin. And Jesus wants to move into that. He doesn't want to leave you stinky forever, but he wants his life to be your life. All right, third thing we're invited to believe is that Jesus is resurrection. That resurrection starts right now. Of course, we have this also in resurrection, this idea that at the end, at the last, Jesus will come again and there'll be this great resurrection where our bodies somehow will be brought up and made new and reunited with our spiritual lives forever in heaven. And resurrection is right now. Jesus said this to Nicodemus when he was, came to him at night talking to Jesus. He said, you know, you need to be born again, which is a crazy idea. But to be born again is that, <clears throat> Nicodemus, you're spiritually dead. You need to be made spiritually alive. And that is the life that Jesus gives, being made spiritually alive. That's resurrection now. So as Jesus is like, thinking about all these people and raising Lazarus from the dead, it's, it's not only about that event. Jesus is pointing to and wanting people to see this spiritual life that's possible where they are going to be made alive and to live that life going forward. So we believe that Jesus is resurrection and that it is now. How do you feel, stinky? You know, what if you wanted to put up your hand to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, just look away? Rather than holding that thing, maybe some grief storage thing, holding it open and saying, Jesus, I want your resurrection life in this. I'm going to hold that for you to provide in. Jesus is inviting us to come to him. Third prayer 
in this story, you know, when did Jesus pray? You hear Susie just read this. It says, um, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, past tense. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. You know, when did Jesus pray? This is kind of like a public proclamation prayer, but there seems to be a prayer that happened several days before when the message came that the one you love is sick, and Jesus went to his father and prayed. And in that beautiful thing of prayer that we get to come to God, just like Jesus comes to God in that moment to receive from God, where somehow God in communion with Jesus told him, Lazarus has died. And I want you to go raise Lazarus back to life. But don't do it right away. Wait a couple days. I've got a couple things I want to talk to Lazarus about in heaven before I send him back. And when you go, people are going to be in all kinds of process. Just be in that process with them, but help them move from being mortal to seeing this life that I'm sending. This prayer, when Jesus says, Father, I thank you, you have heard me, is this great prayer of the in-between. You know, this moment when God said, okay, go raise Lazarus, and then several days later when actually that happens. This in-between is often where we live our lives. The in-between is where our prayers come from. I love in this story that Jesus already knows Lazarus is going to be raised to life. The people don't know that, but he lets them remain in that space until Lazarus is raised. So in our prayers, we often turn to the Psalms, the book of Psalms, as our instruction book on how to pray. And in the Psalms, there's a whole bunch of Psalms that are called lament Psalms. Psalms of lament. And through these psalms, it teaches us to pray in a way where we bring ourselves to God and we hold something that we don't like before God and we ask God to come and meet us in that. In lament psalms, there's often some standard pieces and parts that make up a psalm, but it usually begins with a crying out. A crying out. This is the problem. I do not like this. I don't want this. And sometimes that problem is directed at things around. And sometimes that is directed at God. You're the problem. But it begins with a crying out. And then another piece of lament is a reminder of the things that are true about God. In that psalm, there's a reminding of the self. Ah, these are things that are true about God. So you might think about these things that when we believe in Jesus, what does that mean? To believe in him. We remind ourselves that Jesus is okay with being stinky. We remind ourselves that resurrection is now. And Jesus is inviting us into resurrection and new life now. And then laments often have a part where we hand over the problem to God. Kind of a request, maybe a call to action. One of my favorites is from Psalm 3, verse 7. Here's the call to action. Arise, Lord, deliver me, God. Strike my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. In that, 
God is teaching us to pray in this lament, to hand over the action to him. You know, don't, don't take this on yourself to strike on the jaw. But hand that over to God and trust him in it. We have our lament wall up in the balcony right now, but we are going to be moving it down here for the season of Lent. But at our lament wall, there are a bunch of pieces of paper that have some psalms of lament written on them to read and to, to reflect and make your own prayer. There's also some instructions on the parts and pieces that make up at a lament. There's a whole bunch of blank pieces of paper for you to write your lament, and then put it in the wall. And by that action, making that your lament prayer and giving it to God. You know, maybe you write down, you're crying out. This is it, God. This is bad. I don't like this. Or maybe you write down the reminder to yourself of this truth about God that you need right now. You write that down and stick it in the wall. Or maybe you write down the Call to action that you'd like God to take and you are going to separate yourself from taking. You put that in the wall. Lament. This opening our hand and, and asking God to come and meet us right here in whatever is going on in our life. It's kind of curious to me. We have all these laments that have piled up over the last couple of years in the wall, and we're going to take those out when we move it. And I'd like to take them out and respectfully store them. And then someday I'd like to do a, a lament service, perhaps where we burn those or we kind of let those go to God. That's interesting. Finally, letting go. After his prayer, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Some have speculated that if Jesus didn't say Lazarus specifically and just said, come out, like all the dead people would like rise up. And it's just fantastic to think about the power of God to raise people to life and the power of God in raising people to life, but also giving new spiritual life. This unlimited power of God to give life. So after Jesus calls out to Lazarus, says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go. I don't actually think there's some deep, profound spiritual lesson in that let him go. But I, I'm captivated by this idea that he just needed to be let go. He was in grave clothes. He couldn't move. Somehow he got out, wiggled out. I don't know how he got out. Maybe it was a second miracle to get out of the tomb. And he just logistically needed to be let go. But also, it's fascinating. Like, if you were there, Lazarus is alive, what would you want to do? I'd want to inspect the guy. Like, is your skin okay? Is it still... Rotten? Is there some effect? Are you still stinky? Did the stinky go away? Like you'd like grab onto him and just want to hold him and see him and take everything in about him. But Jesus says, let him go. 
And the thing for Lazarus right there in that moment, he is alive again. He needs to be let go to go live. And how many times in our life when we have these things from our stored shelf of grief that we just are not living because we're just stuck. And Jesus is inviting us once again to open up for his resurrection life to meet us right there in that. To live now. There is life in this life. And that life goes on into eternity. So we live now. Last week, Susie reminded us that in this life and throughout our life, we are practicing letting go. There's many times where we have something and we need to practice the opening up to let go while we remain living on this earth. And over and over, we bring it, receive Jesus' resurrection life, we open up to him. There's an over and over letting go, a practice of it, until someday when there will be an ultimate letting go, where we will let go for the last time, and no longer will we stay here on earth, but we will now go to heaven and be with God forever. And so in this, we are practicing letting go and receiving in the resurrection life of Jesus now. Would you one last time make a fist? And I don't know what's holding on in your fist and what's making you clench so tight, but I invite you to open up your hand once again to let Jesus meet you in that, to bring his resurrection life into your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for resurrection life that we get to experience life now. And we look forward to one day joining you forever. And I pray that our days here would be a practice of letting go and taking in and receiving your life. Jesus, I pray that you meet us in any and all of our stinky things and that you shine your glory all around us in that. Thanks for your grace and goodness. Amen.